We hope you'll be blessed and inspired and challenged and motivated by this fresh word from Christian Heritage Church. Today, it's my privilege to introduce to you our guest speaker, uh, Stephen Walker, better known as Sergeant Rock, is a Vietnam veteran, served three tours in Vietnam. The last tour, and he's going to tell you a story this morning. In an ambush, he was shot 14 times in the back of the arm by an AK-47, resulting in the loss of his left arm. Sergeant Rock is a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ, an ambassador of grace and mercy. He has rode Run for the Wall, which is a coast-to-coast motorcycle run supporting POWs and MIAs and reminding our government we can't leave even one behind. He's ridden that ride from California to Washington, D.C. 24 times, and I'm so proud of him for doing that. He's participated in Rolling Thunder in Washington, D.C., which is over 400,000 motorcycles in parade around uh, the mall in D.C. As once again we say, don't forget those who are left behind. We haven't. We don't want you to either. This morning, would you put your hands together and give him a real hero's welcome, Sergeant Rock. such a pleasure to be here this morning. Uh, I was privileged, I think it's been about two years ago, I met uh, Pastor Stephen Yvonne, and um, we just immediately bonded, so I was so grateful when they asked me to come. Um, I called him on Thursday, and I said, you know, what, what is your dress code? And he said it was business casual. Well, in my world, this is business casual. I have on new socks, new jeans, a new t-shirt, and my vest, uh, because I live in leather most of the year, because I deal with veterans that wear leather. Just for a little history lesson, every major motorcycle club that was ever formed in this country was formed by veterans after a war who didn't feel like they were welcome. And so they created their own little society and support system. So I'm glad to be here nonetheless. Um, if you will allow me this morning, I'm going to I'm just going to expose myself to you, and not in the literal sense, but in the heart sense. I want you to know about how I got to where I'm standing today. Um, I will like to correct history a little bit. I actually served two tours in Vietnam, and I was hit 11 times. And I have a little rhyme or ditty when people ask me. I said, well, I got shot once in the chest, four times in the back, six times in the arm. And then you're done. (laughs) So um, anyway, it's all good. I got shot nonetheless. I was an infantry soldier. Uh, We preferred to be called targets of opportunity. And as you can see, I was really good at it. I I was wounded three different times. I was awarded three Purple Hearts. So I'm really um, honored to do that. Uh, It was my pleasure to go and serve those from our time. Now, my scripture today, because of my era, will be a number one rock and roll song from 1965, which will be out of Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. And I will close with that. I'm kind of backwards. You know, a lot of guys read it first. I just wait till the end because it's more meaningful for me and for you, I, I hope. But I grew up in South Louisiana. My brothers, I have two brothers and a sister, and we were taken away from uh, by the court system and put in an orphanage. Now you're wondering, why am I telling you this? I think everything that happened in my Vietnam experience and beyond was a direct result of my childhood. 
how I reacted to things, how I did this, how I did that. It's based on what I knew or what I was going to learn. We lived longer in this orphanage than any other family. We were there for 14 years. And almost every day from day one that I can remember, I was told, you're never going to amount to anything. You're going to end up incarcerated. Um, You lie. I did. I won't lie. (laughs) And so they set the tone. You know, if people tell you and indoctrinate you long enough that you're going to begin to believe what they say that you're no count, And so they didn't instill in me all the things that I needed to know growing up. I didn't know how to have a relationship with my own brothers and sisters. And we still aren't real close because of that. This this place was huge. And so the only time we saw each other was in passing at meals. My oldest brother and I were the ones that were always together uh, because of our age. And so we all, uh, my other brother, my youngest brother and my sister... Uh, we were all in different buildings. And so we didn't learn about bonding. We didn't learn about relationships. We didn't know how to deal with people. I couldn't figure out why, if I found a young lady that I really liked, that I couldn't keep her because I didn't know how to do that. I'd never been hugged. I'd never been loved. All these things, I mean, right now, I'm like, I'm a real huggy kind of guy because, you know, now I got it and people get it. But it's taken me almost 50 years to get to that point. That's a lot of control given away to somebody else. And so the only way that I could get out of this orphanage before the age of 18 was to join the military. My brother went into the military a year before I did. I went in a year after as well. And we ended up uh, in the Vietnam serving 10 days together in the same unit but different company. I told you, I'll, I'll get back to that later. But I just want to kind of let you know where we were at as a family. Well, when, when I went into the military, the only difference between being in an orphanage and being in the military is that we had guns in the military. However, the big, big difference between those two is that when they tore you down, they built you back up. They gave you a sense of pride. They give you a sense of self-esteem that you can go out and conquer the world, that you can do anything. And so I went off to Vietnam. I volunteered. I discovered that stateside duty wasn't near as much fun as being overseas because overseas we had guns and nobody messed with you. Seriously. You know, that's not meant to be funny. So, you know, when you're at a forward base sitting on the Cambodia and Laotian border, it's just you and whatever aircraft is going to come and pull you out. Whether you're in a firefight, whether you're going to be evacuated from the area, whatever you're going to do. But when I first got to Vietnam and we spent our week together, 10 days together, and my brother went home, I... um, I got on the plane uh, to go out to uh, the forward base, and it was um, what the army called an A-7 Caribou. It was a short takeoff, short-fill landing aircraft. The back went up like this. 
and we're flying out into the, over into the jungle towards the border, and I'm talking to the flight crew, but before all of that happened, I'm sitting there, and this whole, this little airplane is just shaking, and there was these light beams like from God coming in. So I asked the crew chief, I said, hey, what's that? He said, oh, that's just the rivets rolling around when we're flying and the light comes through and the, you know, the back of the plane's doing this all the time. So I'm thinking, my Lord God, what, what did you get me into? And he goes, you volunteered. <laughs> First time I heard from God. And so as we're approaching this area, there's like, um, I asked the crew chief again, I said, where are we going to land? He said, see that little brown strip down there? I said, yes. He said, well, this area, we're going to probably get shot at a lot when we're going in. He says, we're going to go down the backside, because the runway was kind of like this. He says, we're going to go down the backside. We're going to flip around, and then we're going to put the hammer down, and we're getting out of here. And in the midst of all that, we're going to drop this thing down, and then somebody's going to get on, they're going to be running, getting on, and you're going to be getting off. And sure enough, we got shot at all the way to the ground. That was my first taste of fire of somebody shooting at me in anger. Hit the ground. Once I got on the ground, the plane took off. No more incoming fire. I was assigned to the 25th Infantry Division. I was with Bravo Company 1st Battalion, Mechanized 5th Infantry. We were in an area of Vietnam called the Fishhook and the Parrot's Beak, right on the Cambodian Laotian border. My second tour, I was down in an area, same unit, called the Iron Triangle. It's where that the Ho Chi Minh Trail came down, uh, down through Laos, Cambodia, and into Vietnam, and is where all the infamous tunnels of Coochie were. Um, but it's also where all the North Vietnamese and other uh, Viet Cong soldiers would come down, and then they would kind of just like melt blend in with the countryside, they'd change clothes, they'd go in and become part uh, of, the, of the locals. Um, I actually served there in two Tet Offensives there, 1968 and 1969. Uh, 1968, while the Tet was going on in Saigon and other major cities, we're just out in the bush and we're not doing anything. And we're he- just hearing stuff. You know how rumors are when you're in combat, you know, they're rumors. And so about 1 or 2 o'clock that morning of the first night after they hit, we were on the road to Saigon to go and relief um, the uh, air police at Tonsonut Air Base that were surrounded. And these guys weren't, they weren't like soldiers like we were. They were actually just air police. They carried very few weaponry. They had a, like a forty-five. And so that was my first taste of combat. After that was over, then we were back up into the bush. Now, I won't tell you that every day that I was in Vietnam that we were in action because we weren't. In fact, we probably fought as much boredom as we did in combat. It gives you too much time to think, too much time to do this, too much time to do that. My my first drive, just a straight leg. I was a straight infantry guy. We just... We got right on the tracks and we would go out in the morning, but then you'd, you'd just hump the jungle all day. And then my second tour, when we moved to the Iron Triangle, I tunnel ratted for a while. Before we go down underground, go and try to seek the enemy out, find uh, weapons and food caches and, and stuff. Now, 
We have one guy in our unit that was kind of legendary in the, in the uh, tunnel riding. And on his first tour, he was there before I was, but from his first tour, they were actually finding bunkers and uh, stuff up on the Cambodian Lotion border that you could drive trucks into. They had full-blown hospitals underneath there. They had army barracks. I mean, that's kind of what we were putting at, but we couldn't see them. So somebody had to go get them or find them. Uh, that was not one of my smartest moves in the country because I'm not me and uh, <laughs> me and one of the guys were talking this morning. Back then, I weighed about 135 pounds. I wasn't this great physique like I am now. <laughs> All my abs dropped. <laughs> but, uh, and I was telling him, I said, you know, you crawl down through the tunnels, and if, if you're even a little guy, you know, you crawl, and, but when you're broad-shouldered like I am, there's nothing I hate worse than when something falls on the back of my neck. You know, it doesn't matter what it is. I'm like, you know, as best as you can do it with one hand. But the dirt would hit you. But you didn't know what was around the corner uh, when you're going to get a flashlight and a 45. And the only, th- the only out you had was you had a rope tied around your feet that they could pull you out if something hit the fan. And I think about the first time that happened, I quit being a tunnel rat. God gave me some wisdom. It was not something I wanted to do. Uh, first couple of times that I was wounded in Vietnam, they were just like, like secondary shrapnel uh, grazes. I got blown off of a, um, more than once of an armored personnel carrier, got concussions. We didn't know what TBIs were then. They were even telling us there was no such thing as PTSD when I got home, that you just go home and get over with it. And so while I'm there during all this time, you watch guys that, that die or they go home. They're not like now where they go over as a unit, come home as a unit. We, we came as individuals, but like, like that one Pat said, that we went as strangers and we came home as brothers. I believe that today. If I had the opportunity this morning uh, through Facebook, one of the medics that saved my life, I was able to chat with him on Facebook this morning and thank him for his service and for what he did. And he's as humble now as he was then. I did, it was my job. We just did what we had to do. And then he thanked me for my service. You know, these guys went way above and beyond the call of duty. We had one gentleman in our unit, his name was Bob Lee. He was a conscientious objector. He is the one and only person in the Vietnam War that won a Medal of Honor because he died trying to save some guys in our unit. If I had to describe this video this morning, I would describe it as being self-sacrifice. Guys willing to do whatever it took just so we could get home at night. And being home wasn't really home. We're out in the middle of nowhere. We lived and died by helicopters and jet aircraft. If we got into a firefight, we had to be resupplied from the air. We had to call in gunships. We had to call in Air Force. In fact, one time during my tour, at the beginning of the first tour, the USS New Jersey actually was the only people that we could get to do a fire mission for us. And we were so far inland that you could actually count the rings on the round when it came over your head. It's like you could reach up and touch it. Scary stuff. Just as... And then, 
boom, it just lifted you off the ground. But if we didn't have that, who knows what was going to happen? You know, we hear stories all the time that units that got overrun. Um, and when you're 18 years old, this kind of stuff messes you up. Because, you know, when you were thinking, when you got out of high school, you have your whole life ahead of you. You can do this, you can do that. And that wasn't on your mind at all when I was over there. We worried when people were killed and wounded. Are you okay? Did they make it back? Did they do this? Did they do that? We'd go through um, guilt because somebody else got killed and I didn't get killed. It could have easily been me. While I was in Vietnam, we were in a firefight in a small village and I shot a young man in a bunker. He was about, I'm going to say about 12, 13 years old. I just saw a flash and I saw a weapon. I didn't know who or how old they were. And it turns out, yes, he did have a weapon and yes, he was shooting at us. But that affected me the rest of my life with my daughter. I was so afraid to discipline my daughter or to spank her, you know, just stuff you do as parents because I never wanted to hurt another child again the way that I, you know, I killed this kid. And it's taken me a whole lot of years to come to terms with that. And I will tell you that my daughter and I have a great relationship today, but it's still not that father-daughter relationship that you have, or that you, that's normal that you should have. When I got hit the last time, and I was medevaced, uh, I went back to the 12th evac at the 25th Infantry Division Base Camp. Uh, at that point, they hadn't. T- um, my arm was kind of so-so intact, but they ended up having to actually cut it off because A, it couldn't be repaired, and B, because I got gangrene, and it was the only way I was going to live or die. Now, here's where the orphanage thing came in. I mean... I can apply it. Well, I had to make a decision. The doctor came to me, and he says, if we don't take what's left of your arm, you're going to die. I had nobody that I could rely on, that I could talk to. They sent the chaplain down, and he basically just said, you know, (laughs) I can't make that decision for you. That's something you got to do. And so I made my first decision as an adult. That would change my life forever. People ask me, what was the Vietnam War? If you had to label it as something, what would you... I called it a light switch war. One day I'm down at like at McDonald's or somewhere eating with all my friends. Next thing I know, I turn the light switch off. I get on a plane, I fly 15 and a half hours to Southeast Asia... I get off the plane, 10 days after being there, I go into combat. 18 months later, after I'm wounded for the last time, they put me on a medevac. While I was on the plane, we were, they were like jets with just like eight cots high. The guy, I was on the lower of the cots, and the the soldier above me bled out. He died, and all his blood was all over me. And so they moved me up to be able to take care of him. And 
I got to tell you, as, as bad as I was hurt, I did not want to go get back in that cot. They had to sedate me to get me out of a flight crew chair to put me back on that cot. When I arrived back in Travis Air Force Base in Northern California, there were protesters outside the wire. It was just chain link fence with some Constantina wire on top. And that was my first taste of a welcome home. They were throwing urine, feces, anything they could throw at, try to get to you, which they couldn't. But they were, you know, shouting vile, you know. I was in a taxi cab in San Francisco because that's where I was in the hospital for a year and a half. When I got in the car uh, going on a leave while I was there, the, um, the cab driver asked me how many women and children that I killed. Is that what you got all the medals for? I was going on a, um, a medical leave uh, to see some relatives that had eventually taken in my youngest brother and sister just to get away from the hospital. And so this was all kind of setting the tone for me. I mean, it was just kept stacking up, stacking up, stacking up. And while I'm in the hospital, I'm not dealing with PTSD. I'm just worried about staying alive. I mean, I didn't even know what PTSD was. They had a doctor come and say, do you think you have this? Said, well, I have no idea what that is. You know, at 18, 19, 20, you don't see life the same way you do at like 68. I know a lot of things now. I didn't know anything then. And so I, I got out of there and I thought, well, where do you go? I had nowhere to go. So I got on a plane. The only thing I knew was I got on a plane and I flew back to Louisiana where I grew up. And when I went down to the burger place where I used to hang out, they had no idea that I'd even left town, that I even had lost an arm. And so I turned the light switch back on. And what I saw was completely different than what I saw when I left. The world had changed in 18 months. The people that I knew from kindergarten through high school didn't want to have anything to do with me. Girls that I had dated in high school didn't want to have anything to do with me. And it wasn't because I was a Vietnam vet, it was because of this. But they didn't have the courage to say that. I had to figure that out on my own. I'd been rejected as a child. Are you seeing where I'm coming from? And now I'm rejected as a young man. And eventually I will be rejected as as a young adult. Fighting rejection my whole life. And it's pretty easy to go into the toilet up here. You quit thinking with this and you start thinking with here. And so I became a self-medicating alcoholic. Just, I just wanted to pass out. It didn't have anything to do with, I hated alcohol. I mean, I just drank beer and milk because that's what you did when you weren't doing anything else. And then I began, uh, well, I began in Vietnam smoking mar- medical marijuana before it was popular like now. <laughs> they actually put it you in jail then for that. Sometimes around here they don't, but um, that's how I dealt with my, my world. And you say, well, why would you do that? Well, A, I didn't know how to, I didn't know they, what an apartment was. I didn't know that you could, back in those days, that you could rent them with furniture. 
I didn't know you could do this, you could do that. Those are things that as a child, I never learned. So I couch surfed for a long time. But as it, and it also began what I call, you know, you know about burning bridges, right? I didn't burn bridges, I napalmed them. I got rid of them, they were gone. And so then I would have to struggle to go find places to stay. And everybody that was around me no longer wanted to be around me because I was messed up. I came to know the Lord when I was 12 years old, but I got saved when I was about 35 years old. But God gave me free reign. We all have free reign. And so God just let me go. Man, I was partying hard. I would, you know, like I said, I'd go to a party and I'd be the only guy that passed out because I'm like standing by the keg or the, or the bottle and I'm just, I mean, as fast as I could drink like Kool-Aid, as fast as I could shove it down because all I wanted to do was just pass out and hope that the pain went away. I went through a, a bad relationship uh, with a woman a result of it is we had a child. I was smart enough to know that I was not parenting material. So I said, hey, you got married. Have your husband adopt this child because I want him to have a life. That's what I could do for him. But my parents would continue. I'd go to work. Uh, I preferred nighttime jobs as most Vietnam veterans did during that time. Because when you're on the front lines, everything that you do just about is at nighttime. We were on ambush patrol. Um, you could go on a patrol during the daytime all day long, then you're out all night doing ambush, or you're out just like trying to hunt the enemy down, or you were back in the, in the base camp doing perimeter guard. And so when I came home, that followed me. When I started getting my own places to live, I'd do what they call walk near perimeter at night. I'd walk, walk around my apartment with a 12-gauge shotgun loaded with buckshot. And if anything would have tried to get in my door or knock on my window, I would have shot them. Period. I had no values. Whatever values I had was stripped away when I was a child. They were stripped away as a young man because you're thrown into an adult world with, with weapons that kill and hurt and maim people. God began to, at that point, start doing a work in me. He was very subtle about it. But yet, he would make himself known to me at different times. And at one point, I put a gun in my mouth. And I was going to pull the trigger. And even as a young man, I remembered as a child, that all I had to do was cry out to God. And he would rescue me. And I cried out to God. And I heard God say to me, it takes more courage to live than it does to kill yourself. Folks, we got today 22 veterans a day from the Iraq and Afghanistan war killing themselves. That's a travesty. That's why I do what I do. 
Because I, even if I just reach one, then I've done what God's called me to do. Well, during all of this, I met my wife. We just celebrated our 39th wedding anniversary. Um, I like to say that I know 39 veterans that have had more divorces than I've been married. <laughs> and it, it is true. Because they've had the same issues growing up in the 50s and 60s as we did, that because they didn't know how to deal with relationships like they do now, because they actually teach you those types of things. And why my wife stayed with me after five years, I have no idea, other than the fact that she saw something in me and she loved me. I quit drinking shortly before my daughter was, was born. And for me, that created more problems because I no longer could medicate it away. I was going to have to deal with it face to face. I'm going to have to deal with the reality of people around me. And I'm not seeking God yet. Not at all. It wasn't, and I went, my last, I would be honest, the last job I had was in. October of 2001. I was working at the time for the Embassy Network out of New York. I was a logistics specialist for night, uh, Nightly News, NBC Sports, and Dateline. There are many stories that you probably saw during that period that I was in charge of getting it set up. And after that went away, I hit bottom again. Because here I was trying to turn my life around, but I was still pushing people away. I had all these walls and barriers up around me. And if you got too close, I would do something stupid to make you not want to come back. And you get tired of it. You can't cry, you can't release emotion. All I know is survival. That's all I'm trying to do. I'm not trying to live. I just want to survive. And so I started getting involved in uh, a church, different things, because I'm seeking at this point. You know, God's no longer waiting on me. I'm seeking him. And I'm reaching a point in my life where I said, God, I can't do this by myself, as you know. But you've allowed me all this free reign to, to, to do all this stuff that I do. And I wasn't smart enough to know that God was setting me up to do what I'm doing now. Because had I not been an alcoholic, had I not used drugs, had I not abused my wife emotionally and physically and my daughter, I couldn't go to somebody that's having the same issues and say, hey, I've walked in your shoes. And I know, I know what you're going to. But there's a solution to what you're going to. There is light at the end of the tunnel. It's not hopeless. Amen. My wife and I, or not my wife, my daughter and my wife were diagnosed with secondary post-traumatic stress disorder because of me. It's all on me, period. There are women in this building this morning that are married to veterans. I don't care what war they're in. They have secondary PTSD from their husbands and they don't know it. 
they, they recognize some of the stuff I'm talking about, like the verbal abuse. Uh, you know, I'm really grateful I never physically abused my wife or my daughter, but I didn't know they were about ready to incarcerate me um, because they went to see a doctor at a Navy hospital in San Diego where we were living at the time. They told them what was going on. That's where they were diagnosed. And had I not already been in a program, they would have had me arrested and incarcerated. But God... But it wasn't an easy fix. The guy you see now is not the same guy I was 30 years ago, even 25 years ago. In spite of my circumstances, God began to use me. And sometimes I'd go, God, why me? I would question him. God, why are you using, want to use a, a guy that looked like me? You know, I'm overweight. I got one giant finger. But God gave me a heart. God healed my heart. He took me out of here and put me down here. When I first started in ministry, I was kind of stupid. Still am. But I would go out and I would do all these things that God would put me in a position to do. And I'd always want to know what the payoff was. There's no payoff. The payoff is if you come to Christ. Well, because of the run for the wall in the 24 years that I've been involved with that, I began to meet guys that were just like me and women that had served in the military. And all of a sudden, the family that I didn't have, I had. Every May, we met in Los Angeles. And for three or four days before we left, we had just like this huge family reunion. We loved on each other and we wished each other well. And we've gotten so big since the first year that I've not, we actually have three routes that go across this country now. I was on the original one. But I began to, I just loved on people like I wanted to be loved. That wanted a hug. I didn't uh, proselytize anybody. I didn't even mention God. But I started getting calls like, about every two or three years now, I'll get a call from somebody. They say, you may not remember me, but I remember you. And you poured into my life, and you just loved me. And I want to thank you for that, because now my wife and I are not getting a divorce. I'm no longer an alcoholic. You didn't talk about Jesus. You live like Jesus. And I guarantee you, that's not something that I could have done on my own. You know, there's two words that define my life, and that's mercy and grace. Because I'd not had either one of them, we wouldn't be having this conversation. Now, I, I probably would be incarcerated somewhere, just because I'm that stupid, or I was that stupid. But my, my God began to heal my marriage and the relationship with my daughter. And that's why 39 years later, we're still together. Because she saw something in me that I didn't see. And she was willing to love me no matter what. Amen. Guys, you got to love your wife like it's your last day. you got to live life like it's your last day. You've got to live it to your fullest. you gotta, you got to love. And you have to take care of those around you. You have to be their protector. You have to do all these things. But most of all, 
you have to treat your wives and your children as though they're your princesses and they're your queens and they're there's there's no gray area at all and it's taken me I'm I just turned 68 years old earlier in the week that's like nine and almost three quarters in dog years I like that better it sounds better <laughs> yeah you didn't make you feel so old so when I get to be 10 when I'm 70 it, it's not going to be that big a deal but I know that God set me up and I bid it hook, line, and sinker. And I look back on it now and I said, yeah, I burned a lot of bridges. I got a lot of people mad at me. I, I mean, I did a lot of stuff. But God goes, I got you. Even though I was 12 years old and I had that foundation of being saved. You know, just because you knew know, you, you God as your Savior, in my mind, at 12 years old, I wasn't saved. That's why I got saved when I was 30-something years old. But I had to give it all to him. I had to take all this pain, all this anger, and just get rid of it. One of the number one questions that I get asked when I go talk places is, what do I think about the Vietnam Wall? Well, I will tell you almost to a man, we hated it. When they first said, well, it's just an old black granite wall. And the person that designed it was of Asian descent. So we really hated it. But they built it anyway. And now for me and other Vietnam veterans, that's probably the safest place in the world for us to go. Because we know when we go to see our buddies on the Vietnam Wall that we're not going to be judged. It gives us a chance to go down and spend time with their families if they're there. I've done more ministry at between 1 and 3 in the morning at the Vietnam Wall than I've ever done out doing this. And the reason is, is because guys like me would only go out at night and they didn't want to go and be around all the crowd because they felt like they were phony. That they really didn't love them and didn't want, didn't want to thank them for nothing. And so the wife would approach me and I said, hey, my husband's a Vietnam veteran. This is the first time he's been Could you come talk with him? Well, then God allowed me to do two things. First, he allowed me to love on that person and his wife, find out their situation, you know, what's going on in your life. And when nobody else is around, you can talk freely for a long time. But then I, I never pushed myself on but I said, can I pray for you guys before you leave? And they're like, yeah, we'd like that. God's taken all the things that I use for excuses and crutches and everything else, and he's turned them towards the kingdom. I mean, if, if there's anything worse than a pathological liar at one point in my life, I was, a narcissist, I was diagnosed as being a narcissist. I blamed everybody for my problems except for old rock. Well, it's your fault because I did this or I got fired or I did this or I did... It, it didn't matter that I didn't go to work for five days in a row and didn't call in or I was, or I was deliberated and couldn't, couldn't think to get there. I mean, there's times now that, that God just... He keeps jumping back and forth. He's kind of like ship-shifting, you know, shape-shifting like the Native American believer. And last November the 3rd, 
I had ridden my motorcycle all the way to North Carolina from Texas. I got ready to make a left-hand turn into the conference center where I was going to speak for three days. And I got hit from behind by a car. I was launched off my motorcycle. And I, I don't remember what happened after that until I was in the um, trauma center. Not like downstairs, but up in a room. And the surgeon came in and he talked to me and said, you know what? Had you not had your helmet on, you would be dead. We wouldn't be having this conversation. And God began to mess with me. And I'm thinking, God, what is it that you want? And basically he says, I'm not done with you yet. And I did not know until the day before Thanksgiving last year if I would ever walk again. I'm here by the grace of God. And my reaction to what God was doing is I started, all the young ladies that were taking care of me in North Carolina, every time they'd come in the door, I, I was ministering to them. And here I was, the one that was in bed that couldn't walk. And then the day that I left and they put me in a vehicle to take me to the airport, one of the young ladies that I had tried to just feed into her life just began to weep and she thanked me for taking care of her when she should have been taking care of me. And she did. I've had so many defining moments in my life. Problem with defining moments, and they can be really good, but they all carry a circumstance. And sometimes the circumstances aren't pretty. But what you have to deal with is get rid of the circumstance and put your eye on the moment. Just because I got ran over by this lady, I never got angry at her. Never sent her nasty notes. Didn't even go after her insurance-wise. But God took care of it. $1,500 to fix my motorcycle. Over 50000 to fix me. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> You're paying for it. But uh, <laughs> but I could have chose to slide back into the bottle when things seemed so low. And when I was when they sent me to the trauma center where I live at in Amarillo, Texas, um, God just kind of orchestrated everything. My daughter is the director of medical students for Texas Tech University. And three of the doctors that work with her are trauma surgeons. And so they took care of me pro bono when I got to the hospital. And the first question out of my wife's mouth, you going to get on your motorcycle again? I go, yep, as soon as I can walk. My daughter came walking in the room. She goes, I told you. <laughs> my daughter wanted me to get off. I said, you know what, God, if God wants me off the motorcycle, he'll tell me, you know, it's time to... Sell it and go do something else. Then I'll get in a motorhome and go do it. Because as long as God has decided that he's going to use me, I'm going to keep answering your call. Because I guarantee if you tell God no long enough, he's going to move on. He's not going to need you. He wants somebody that's willing to sell out for the kingdom. That's right. 
But I know that I know that I know that I'm here today because God loved me. Or Steve. Our prayer is that God will take this word and plant good eternal seeds deep into your soul. Father, we pray for your great wisdom to infiltrate this listener, draw them to you, and take them gently down the road to their next destination in life. And if you're in need of a home church, we invite you to join us at Christian Heritage Church on Shera Road in Tallahassee, Florida. A multicultural church founded on the truth of God's Word and the power of the Holy Spirit. For a worship service where the presence of God has first place, you're invited to Christian Heritage Church. Sunday morning service is at 10.30, Wednesday evening at 7, plus youth group and kid power and small groups and more. For all the latest information, visit our website, chctoday.com.